welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Harjit Gill, and she was the Chief Executive Officer of Philips in the APAC region. So while she was at Philips, she managed 10,000 people in 10 different countries and was responsible for accelerating growth in three business sectors, and one of those was healthcare. So as a 25-year veteran in Philips, she held a variety of international roles in general management, emerging markets, lots of different stuff like that. But she is currently the CEO at the Asia-Pacific Medical Technology Association, so APAC Med for short. So on the episode today, she talks about her time at Philips and growing that business. There's lots to get from this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So Harjit, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, James. How are you? Very well, thank you. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Harjit? I'm in Singapore, sunny Singapore. Oh, very nice. Quite away from Bradford, which is uh, where I believe your accent's from. It is. Well noticed. You say that. I mean, you did like declare it to me before we started recording, <laughs> but thank you, for, thank you for trying to make me look good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I'm uh, so as you rightly pointed out, yeah, I'm from Bradford, Yorkshire lass, born and bred. Very nice, very nice. Um, cool. So the way that we start these Hajit is that I, I get people to tell their story. So by all means, tell us the long version, but it'd be great to hear a bit about you, a bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you are now. I certainly can. Um, so where do I want to start? I, th- I think I'll start by... Um, Obviously, uh, as you will, as we've discussed, I'm from Bradford, went to university in Manchester, and my first career was with banking. I joined the Midland Bank. Didn't last very long. Um, (laughs) To be honest, I struggled. It was uh, fairly conservative and cliquey in those days. I'm not Mm. sure how much has changed, but certainly in those days, it was like that. Uh, Then I moved to Holland and started to work for a Dutch company called Philips, and I stayed there for 25 years. Um, Pretty much had an international career, moved all over the world, uh, lived in several countries, uh, Holland, Hong Kong, Dubai, Singapore, um, specializing quite a bit in uh, the consumer side of the business and also Mm. in what I would say emerging markets or Mm. what I would call emerging markets. Um, In my last five years, I was the regional head for ASEAN and Pacific, managing all of their businesses across. Um, So in those days, we had lighting, um, healthcare, and the consumer side of the business. Great position to be in. And that's where I um, actually became quite passionate about healthcare uh, and decided to evolve in that space. Yeah, I retired from Philips in 2015, and since then um, I do several things. Uh, first and foremost, I run APAC Med, which is Trade Association for Healthcare. It's a great place to be because I can actually keep on top of what's happening in the region in healthcare, and also work with the major players out here to try and move the needle when we talk about access to healthcare. I sit on a few boards, um, mostly healthcare and consumer goods companies. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, I'm involved mentoring a few startups here and there. Uh, so quite a busy life. Very nice. Mother well, of two. <laughs> mother of two. 
have to add that two boys, one at uh, university in Scotland. <laughs> I think what, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? One thing about the pandemic I've noticed, even even doing these Zoom calls, is that you, you know you, you actually see behind the curtain now to people's families and and people's homes yeah. and people's lives, and actually. Yeah, there, there are there are two kids behind this very successful person, and congratulations <laughs> for raising them and having such a wonderful career. Uh, well, and good for you for bringing two, that up as well. I mean, I like it. No, well, two successful kids and a husband. <laughs> who's, who's my biggest cheerleader? So I, I feel need to mention mention that as well. But yes, Amazing. I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, and to be honest, it's not just COVID. I, I sense over the last few years, we've just become more and more open and authentic as leaders. Yeah. Because you bring your whole self to the table, right? So my family's played a big part in terms of um, helping me with some of the decisions that I've had to make. But also as a family, we've made those decisions when we've moved from country to country. Um, I really, yeah, I really so- like that, that, that what you just mentioned there that authenticity and leadership seems to be going up and I think I agree with that I think this partly I suppose in my game and in, in, you know social media and communications and things like that authenticity is valued so highly and gets so much more when let's go super practically it gets so much more engagement on social media as measured by the engagement metric on social media <laughs> right so it actually is more engaging fact but it's interesting yeah. when you sort of extrapolate that to leadership in general. Do you consider yourself or have you considered yourself an authentic leader as you've gone through? Do you think that's been part of your success in being in such high leadership positions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not, um, part of it is, of course, who you are. Part hmm. of it is having the comfort, security um, and recognition at a company that you're able to be who you are, Right. So I was lucky. Uh, I worked for a company where it was okay to manage your work life together with your personal life. And as I mentioned um, early on, I just, for me, it was just, it was a part of who I was. So I wanted to make sure that I tried to do the best by both. And if I had issues, I was lucky enough to have great colleagues who would more than cover for me um, when I needed that support. And I think nowadays it's an absolute prerequisite. I mean, we want to have more diverse teams. A number of women struggle to come back to the workforce because they're mothers. Um, and I think as companies, we just need to be more flexible, not only in terms of the conditions, but also the way they come back. So like I said, I was pretty lucky in working with people who were open to that. Um, yeah, and it was important for me. So I never stopped pushing it. Yeah, definitely. And that's awesome. What, what, do, you, what do you think... What does authenticity in leadership actually mean? Does it mean being honest about what you're good at, what you're not good at? Does it mean being honest to those that work for you about what they're good at and not so good at? What What do you think? What What is authenticity in leadership for you? That's a really good question. So I suppose it's me, all of the above, right? Yeah, but go for it. <laughs> it. It is. It is all of the above. But I think no longer do people expect perfect leaders, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing, as a leader. I'm on a journey as well, Mm. right? There's a difference from managing a business to leading a business. And you all follow, if if that's where you're going, you all follow that trajectory. So I think it's open as a, it's it's okay to be open as a leader, not only about the business and the challenges that you face. You know, you've got good quarters, you've got bad quarters. It's important as a team, we're able to say, hey, what went wrong? How do we fix it? And it's not about, 
there's no blame culture. As a team, mm. we're responsible for this result. So it's also carrying each other through that. And then the second thing is, and I think as a leader, I mean, I, I'm always open to learning and growing. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I had on, I had early on in my career was, hey, you're focusing a lot on what you're bad at. Why don't you just become really excellent at what you're good at? Because you'll always be able to find people who can help you in the areas that you're not good at. And that's actually how I built my teams. I know what I'm good at. I know that I can drive results. I love sales. I love customers. I'm very operational. But I also like to think of the long term. I like to see end to end how I'm going to take this business to the next level. What I'm not good at, a couple of other areas, like, you know, being really, really detailed. Um, and typically, sometimes I move too fast. So okay. it's, it's important then to have people around you who can pull you back. And that's for the benefit of you and the team. So I think authenticity in that. And the third area I would say is about managing and coaching people. So I don't think as a leader, your responsibility stops when you hire. So I take it on board to actually make sure that my team gets to the next level. So success for me is seeing them grow and then get to the next level. And that requires you to have a very open relationship. And, but it's about also taking that accountability, right? So I take the accountability to make sure I help you get your next move. And then with that, we coach you to get there. I th- yeah, I think that is a really interesting point and a really good point about that the responsibility doesn't end when you hire someone to do a job. They then become your responsibility, their growth, their career path, you know, all the rest of it. Yes, they have a job to do for you. You pay them to do something, but there is a duty of care, not only to look after them while they're on your time, but also I believe as well, to make sure that they're doing what they can do for the next bit of their career. Because why wouldn't you do that? It can be with you. It can be elsewhere, but I think there's more to life. And I think it's really interesting how eloquently you've put so much of that as well. Um, I think a lot of the words that strike me there, it's almost synonymous with honesty about yourself and others and understanding your own faults, but particularly that accountability. But as a leader, I think, I think that is key. I always think things are my fault. I always trace it back to what could I have done better? And I think, you know, yes, there's a, there's a bit there about not everything is your fault and, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. But at the end of the day, if, if you are, you know, C-suite in an organization, then what could I have done better is always going to be an attitude for change rather than blaming people that are in inverted commas under you and, and things like that, you know? Well, I mean, I, to be honest, I think that that would be the worst environment to be in. Oh, where there's is a blame culture. So I, I've really been very lucky um, in not working in an environment like that. Yeah. But I think it's, a, so when I, typically the companies that I tend to work with, uh, and Philips is a great example of that, but so are some of the companies. I sit on the board of ResMed, which is another healthcare company, mm. um, and MAS, another company out here in the region. And by the way, APAC Med. For me, the values that you have in these organizations, they're the things that attract people to you. Yeah. So you know immediately when you talk to people, what the, what the, first of all, what the chemistry is like, and secondly, yeah. what the values are. And, and I think it's up to each of us to decide, okay, this fits me or it doesn't. Yeah, I do agree with that as well. And I think it's okay if it doesn't fit to move on very quickly as well, because at the end of the day, people You'll can anyway say- yeah and p- but it's interesting isn't it people can say what values are people can say or a company can say what values are a company can say 
what uh, or how they treat their staff and their culture and things like that. But I think until you've really experienced it, uh, it's uh, it, it may be Behaviors. very different to what's written down. <laughs> no, absolutely. It is behaviours. It's how people yeah. respond. It's how people work together. It's how people drive results. So, and, and it's visible within the first three months. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, people can tell you one thing, but you will experience everything in the first few months. And I think totally, that's, yeah. totally love it. The, uh, so f- for, uh, for any organization, in fact, to be yeah. defined by their ability to innovate is one heck of a compliment because they're not going to be innovated you know, out the market, out the water, whatever you want to call it. What do what do you think makes a, a company a good innovator? It always starts with listening to your customers or consumers. Mm. I think right. So, uh, on the consumer side of the business, we would innovate through real consumer insights. So, okay. I, I used to have a saying with my consumer goods business: I can launch a product, but. A product is only successful if it becomes part of your daily routine. Mm. If it's not part of your daily routine, it's a gift. It's an ad hoc purchase. I want my products to be part of your daily routine, which means repeat purchases, replacement, and all that sort of stuff. So I think um, innovating in that space, um, the company, of course, did a fabulous job. And that's how we would start. What's the insight here? What's the trigger? Why would I change? Why would somebody buy this? How am I making their life better? What is it? How is it an improvement versus a competitor product? And how can I charge more in the market? Of course, because you want to improve the profitability of any business. And I think the second question is always um, giving yourself the opportunity to explore with technology. So mm. Philips had the Nat Lab in the old days, and this was a, a place where you know people could dream, could um, work on innovations and technologies that may not have a home just yet, but at least at some stage it would come together and it would be so much into the future that, you know, somebody who was directly in the market, sometimes you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how does this work out to be a product? Um, But yeah, eventually, you know, you need both. So you need that vision, uh, but you also need to constantly upgrade what you have today. It's funny when you, when you explain that, at you know, multinational level, I have so many startup founders and entrepreneurs on here that, you know, well, arguably the other end of that scale, you know, just starting out and just a couple of founders and the principles are the same, you know, understand the problem, listen to your customers and, you know, dream big and explore those ideas. I read, um, I read the book, how Google works recently. Uh, I mean, I read it all the time. It's awesome book for growing a company, but one of the things they talk about in there, I think they call it 20% time or 15% time, but the, the time that employees have to work on a project that isn't their core, but is just something rogue or interesting to them or right. could be the next big thing. And I think Google Maps came out of that and a few other things, like just from people just be, having the time to explore things on work time for the benefit of the company, but things that are interested in them, they're passionate about. Um, just, just super interesting. And, and as I say, like, you know, the principles being exactly the same down at the startup end, it's, uh, I suppose there's just a few more people in between, right? <laughs> no, that's true. But you know, a number of companies now have these internal uh, initiatives where they drive. Um, yeah. Uh, initiatives where, where where they try to get ideas, you know, from 
we used to do it at Philips. ResMed does a fantastic job mm. also of, uh, you know, uh, holding competitions internally to get ideas. And I think there's several sessions during the year where uh, uh, ideas are evaluated. So I think people are, are becoming more and more open to that. And it's, it's okay, but it's not just having the ideas. What I like is, at least with some of the companies that I talk to, is how do you then take those ideas uh, to be successful? Right. So we all know that innovate, so having an idea is, is probably you know, one of the first steps, but then bringing it to fruition, especially within a corporate environment is difficult. You know, with all the matrix and this and that. So I like the fact that some companies take these businesses out and make them standalone entities. And you also reward people accordingly, right? Which I think is great. So I love that whole space. I think it's fantastic that we're exploring and we're sort of disrupting and um, breaking a few rules here and there. Otherwise, you just don't get progress. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and here's to all the rule breakers trying to get it done, honestly. Um so you were appointed CEO of APAC Med uh, a couple of years ago. So tell us what APAC Med is. Tell us what you've done over the last couple of years. Tell us what you're up to uh, going forwards. Yeah, tell us all that. Yeah, so APAC Med is um, Asia Pacific's only regional trade association. Um, and I think back to your earlier point about bringing in people from different parts of the ecosystem. We're one part of the ecosystem of healthcare out here in the region. And when I was at Philips, one of the gaps I had, or one of the challenges I had as a leader was, you know, we had to make so many fundamental changes in markets to get healthcare higher on the agenda, to increase the spending in healthcare, to get people to start looking at chronic diseases and the burning platform that this was going to create. It was very difficult to be the only person, you know, waving a hand and trying to get out there. So. There were trade associations that were national, but with, with and they, were, they weren't that mature, they were growing still. So a few of us decided to come together to form APAC Med. Um, and basically what we do as a trade association is work on common areas of interest um, that will accelerate access to healthcare. So this region, as you probably know, holds about 60% of the world's population. I didn't India know that, but that does make sense. Yeah. 60, well, 60% 60 of the world's population. And I think I had it written down somewhere. I think already by 2050, two thirds of the world's population over 60 will be out here. Oof. Will be in Asia Pacific as well. So it's a region that is, um, you know, one of the largest population, if not the largest population. We've got aging hitting us in a massive way. Yeah. Um, NCDs. Yeah. So prevalent, of course, with the rise with the with the middle class. And all of this um, against the backdrop of limited or no access to healthcare. Yeah. So I think as medical device companies out here, uh, APAC Med works with them. And then we work on several areas. Most of the work we do is around advocacy. Mm -hmm. So how can we put our industry on the table when it comes to policymakers or governments so that they see the impact of what we have and how important it is to spend more on healthcare. We work on areas um, around capability building because again, in a region this um, diverse, there are of course massive gaps when it comes to capability. For example, regulate, the regulatory industry here, I mean, and you need the regulatory industry to be able to regulate and to 
you know, um, allow you to sell your products out here. Yep. So there are massive gaps there and we can work there to actually build that capability. We also work on digital health. So that's a new committee that we started a year ago. And I have to say, it's great. I feel that we take the lead more and more. We really look to working in the region um, and highlighting best practices when it comes to reimbursement, looking at uh, a common framework that regulators can use when they're assessing digital technologies. Uh, we work on cyber, we work on interoperability. So we work on several topics together with our members um, just so that we can actually put forward a view that will help governments in this region. The region alone though is, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, a, fair, it's a pretty fragmented region, right? We've got the developed markets, you've got Japan, Korea, Australia, so pretty much um, well-equipped to deal with a lot of the issues. Yeah. And I, I call the evolving markets, China, India, so coming a long way. There, you know, 40% of the world's population is there, but I see that when it comes to providing healthcare, they're um, making some headway. But then you've got ASEAN, and ASEAN is a fragmented region of smaller markets where I think probably some of the some of the markets have some of the biggest gaps when it comes to healthcare access. So what do we do? We work with these trade associates, we work with these member companies uh, on, on a whole range of issues around digital health, regulatory reform, advocacy, market access, reimbursement. We also look at the uh, startup community. So we have a partnership with MedTech Innovator in the US. Um, and essentially we source for a pipeline of companies from throughout the region startups. You know, we have a unique position there as a, as a bridge between startups and corporates. Yeah. Right? And yeah. you will know with your work, it's great having the ideas, but then you need to be able to connect with somebody who can help you yeah. improve the efficacy of your solution. And what better way to do that than with a, with a, with a, with a multinational that might be interested to help you pilot. So okay. we try to try to be that bridge there as well. Awesome. We're 200, yeah, we have about 200 members uh, and several committees. So typically we work through our committees um, and our committees are manned by our members. Got it. So much I want to talk to you about here. Um, First, first question, what organization, what types of organizations are your members? So we have the top medical device companies, uh, everybody from Medtronic, J&J, Baxter, Abbott, Siemens, uh, Roche, Stryker, uh, ResMed. Uh, so top 20 medical device companies are members. We also have uh, startups, and then we also have what we call uh, other trade associations, mm -hmm. um, and we have uh, associations. So we tend to work with knowledge providers. So McKinsey, Deloitte, um, Robert Walters, Corn Ferry. So we work with a whole bunch of uh, um, nice companies with whom we can create content. Got it. Super interesting because I was having a conversation even earlier this morning uh, on, on innovating in healthcare and it being, I don't know whether it's unique because I'm sure challenges are across other sectors, but it's, it's certainly interesting that so much of innovation in healthcare is dependent upon things like the infrastructure within an organization for it to even be ready for it, policy that may or may not 
be providing a good or bad lever for something to happen. It seems that there's so much, whether you want to call that centrally or another word for it, but there's so much that goes on that isn't just a startup, a company, an entrepreneur, a, a multinational, just banging at the door. You know, it, there's more than that that needs to happen. It's it's like you're describing this entire ecosystem approach, which is really interesting. And I like what you said about, well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, acknowledging that so much of what the work you're doing uh, is towards capacity building um, and actually build, like building the capacity for these interventions to even reach organizations, patients, clinicians, yeah. et cetera, and that being a huge part of it. But then when you talked about digital health specifically, you've hit some, you've, you've hit like the, you know, the biggest issues in the space, arguably, um, highlighting best practice of reimbursement, like business models are just so hard to get right in healthcare when someone buys, someone else saves, therefore they don't do it because they need to get, you know, it, it, budget boundaries are all over the place so in healthcare complex. and it's super complex. The fact that you're helping those organizations assess digital health. We've seen that in, in the UK with, with NHSX releasing guidance on that as well. Incredibly important part. Cyber, like last week, two French hospitals had cyber attacks. They've now chucked a billion euros into, you know, putting up the defense walls against cyber in healthcare. Interoperability, like anyone that listens to this podcast knows that that is constantly an issue for startups. It seems that what, you, what you're doing, the work that you are doing is bringing together these really big influential players, but also putting in the melting pot, the startups, the other the other trade associations, also the, the people that oil those wheels. You've mentioned specifically, you know, the startup community, that the, the pipeline from places in the US and others that can sort of bridge that gap. It seems like a real ecosystem play here to try and get things done long game. There's no quick fixes here. There's no, and, and whilst, you know, lobbying for something to change something might make change happen quickly. Seemingly this is bigger than that. It seems like you're, you're trying to work this for the long term across quite an ambitious uh, area of land, <laughs> which is interesting. No, absolutely. And it is, it's, and I think you said it yourself, right? So first of all, healthcare is, so complex because there are so many players you know you've got yeah. devices you've got patients you've got payers you've got providers yeah. regulators um, so, governments well, <laughs> everyone puts yeah. a foot so in the list the list is endless so there's a massive ecosystem that you have to navigate in order to play in this space yeah. that actually deters a lot of companies as well right and if it doesn't, I think they should certainly know that to get something through this entire ecosystem requires quite some staying power, mm. right? And especially if you're a startup, you have an idea, you've got to not only build that idea, but you've got to prove the clinic with the clinical evidence on the efficacy of what you're bringing. And then if you want reimbursement, we start looking at, okay, how does this, how does this support better outcomes? How are you making that sort of current process cheaper or yeah. current way of managing that disease cheaper and all along the way of course because we're dealing with patients and these are you know and rightly so we want to make sure that anything that people are using is has efficacy 
um, and delivers the promise that it's supposed to deliver. So I think on the one hand, I appreciate the structure and the rigor with which certain parts are applied. On the other hand, though, I do think there are parts of our ecosystem that are um, way too conservative. Yeah, no, definitely. So long to change behavior. Um, but during COVID, it was really, for me, it was encouraging to see how people collaborated. Yes. Suddenly you've got vaccine players coming together that you never would have. You've got governments trying to look at track and trace. People all, like in Singapore, I mean, we we use so many digital solutions. And in the past, you would have difficulty on getting those through because people were worried about data or worried about, you know, many different angles. But, you know, that common cause brought everybody together. So I think COVID did disrupt some of the existing behaviors and also some of the existing solutions out there. So I'm hoping we can now build on that and get Mm. some acceleration in the system. Yeah, definitely. And necessity was definitely the mother of invention recently. like 100% to get things done. I think so many areas of the health tech ecosystem have seen that. Can you tell me something like that you push forwards or one of these projects yeah. or a startup that's gone through? Well, not so much a startup, but I'm, and I, I think there are a couple of pieces of work that we are gaining quite some traction on. Uh, the first is uh, what I call the value of med. So the value of med tech. And as an industry, we're always tagged on with pharma. So medical devices, at least in Asia, when you go to talk to governments, they're like, sorry, what is it that you do? Mm. Um, Whereas during COVID, we were at the forefront of this fight as medical devices with ventilators, um, with PPEs, uh, with um, a whole, you know, with with the work being done on the vaccine. So I think as an industry, we were definitely at the forefront. What we did in Asia is we pulled together um, the story around this and why it's important. A healthy nation is a healthy economy, essentially. And we pull together a lot of stories and examples from our members that we now use in country when we talk to governments. So in terms of an advocacy piece, that really helps our members uh, to be able to talk more holistically and strategically about the value of our industry. So that's one. The second thing that we uh, did, which I think um, the team have been working on actually even before my time, is the whole area around regulatory uh, capability building. So we work with several entities to come up with a framework and with key skill sets that we think are needed. And moving forward, we're gonna be putting together content to actually start putting forward trainings of regulators in the region. Um, So I think that's a gap that was there and clearly uh, the kind of content we create is, 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 representative of everybody uh, who's a member. So I think that's good. We've also published a um, a legal and ethics code for the region. So obviously I don't need to say what that means, but everybody needs to behave in the right way um, according to the same guidelines. Um, Another area that I thought was really interesting is around what we call regulatory reliance. So at least within ASEAN, Today, uh, you're going to individual countries to register products. We're trying to create some case studies where using HSA, the regulatory body in Singapore, um, the work that they've done, using that so that you can accelerate the process in other markets. So we're doing some pilots now in Thailand and we'll be doing them probably in Vietnam and a couple of other countries. If they can take on board the work that somebody else has already done, 
um, we can fast track the, the, the registry process, uh, registering process in some of those, uh, those markets. Um, when it comes to digital health, we just published um, a framework for regulators, as I mentioned earlier, around how to assess digital technologies and solutions. So I think we're publishing a lot of work. The idea now is to actually this year activate it in market. So now that we've got the content, how in country are we working with our members to make sure that it lands and it's being used? That's awesome. And I, I suppose the bit that gets me, or, or I suppose the summary for me is that you're trying to point everything in the right direction. You're trying to make sure that we're all pulling in that same correct direction by the sounds of things. And I think by setting or by taking the time and the effort to untangle some of the messy concepts and for like, for example, that the value of the industry, that is really interesting because at scale, it's really difficult without some mammoth health economic of health economic tasks that looks at all the health economics of the health economics and figures it out. Can you really put a value on Things like, I don't know, the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program. Yes, they have metrics, but like, what is the value? Or any accelerator that's in the space, or like the AHSNs in the NHS, or like, except like, there's there's so many things that you could be like, what well, what's actually the value here? It's so, it's so difficult exactly. because so much of it is intangible. But obviously, you're you're unbiased, right? You're looking at this from a vantage point that looks at everybody, and so you're in the perfect position well, exactly. to calculate the value of this stuff. No, exactly. And I think um, it's only by bringing all those stories together that you really see the contributions that everybody makes. Yeah. And it's massive. So yeah. um, again, it's funny, cause it's funny, isn't it? Cause we all kind of, we all feel it because we're in it, but you can imagine at sort of government level or cabinet level, someone turns to the health secretary and they're just like, what is the point in all this investment? Like, show me the figure, show me the number, show me what's actually improving. And, you know, you can imagine that happening. And for all of us that sit in this ecosystem, we know the value, we can see it, we know it anecdotally, we know it somewhat because of feeling the organizations working together to come up with solutions. But yeah, I think that that is awesome work, to be perfectly honest. And, and even... Yeah, because I've seen it in with NHSX in the UK, and I'm sure that there are some other organisations globally, although not any in, in APAC by the sound of things. But things like looking at the ethics, I know that I've seen some um, AI ethics guidelines coming out recently of what what ethical AI looks like. There's a there's a startup there's called Febris. They've started a podcast called Ethical AI that's coming on the radar a bit more. You know, it's it, it it's a really interesting part of how technology is going to be made scalable. I, I was on that actually really interesting roundtable about VR in in healthcare and the ethics around that and that standards haven't really caught up yet. And, you know, is it going to do more harm than good and these, this, that, and the other. And, you know, one of the arguments that they shut down very quickly was, you know, if you over-regulate it, you're going to stifle innovation. And it's like, no, if you set where the parameters are, people can be completely free within them. And that's going to lead to more innovation. I was like, wow, that's actually like, that's flipped my understanding of it completely on its head. That's awesome. So I can, you know, people talk about regulation being boring and it's like, well, yeah, but if it sets the the parameters or the perimeter in which you can just be as free as you like and do what you like, then 
then we're all going to see more innovation and then I can get on board with it. And I'm like, right, now I see the value of these government bodies. <laughs> now I get it. Uh, no, and then, you know, like most people, well, not most people, everybody in healthcare, right? You have a duty of care. Correct. So you've got to make sure at the end of the day that you're taking the right decisions and making sure that there are, there are borders, there are controls and measures put in place. But, you know, that's, to be honest, that's just, for me, that's in every aspect. I had it in my businesses. Yeah. I have it in healthcare. <laughs> you know, when we're playing a more strategic role, um, you've got to know where the boundaries are. I love it. So for organizations in Asia Pacific that want to understand more about what you're doing, they want to feel some value from from all these different bits that you're pushing out, or indeed they want help in the more practical element, which you're moving to. How do they find you? How do they contact you? What are the what are the ways that you guys get that done with people? So actually, we have. Um, we organized probably the region's largest uh, conference uh, also in MedTech. Very so we cool. do that once a year in September. Last year we did a virtual one. So we were uh, probably one of the first ones to try the virtual uh, uh, space for this. How did it go? Um, it was fantastic. We had, um, wow, we had over 150 speakers um, mm-hmm. globally. We had four tracks. We had five global CEOs, four tracks, 150 speakers, more than 50 sessions, and close to 1,500 people um, dial in. So that's actually one of the ways that we connect with the community. That's one. So mm. we hold massive conference, and it used to be live, um, yeah. but now we're always going to probably move into hybrid mode. We also do every month um, loads of events around uh, all of the topics that we talk about, also webinars. Um, panel, discussions, whatever. Uh, so that's the other way. And of course, uh, social media, so people can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, and we have a website. So if you want to apply, uh, www.apacmed.com. Excellent. Hodget, this has been a wonderful chat. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel like I've learned quite a lot about your region just from the fact that I've spoken to you. I don't, there's so many organizations I now don't need to speak to because you've just told me what they all do. Um, <laughs> but it's, it sounds like a really innovative area. It sounds like you guys are leading the way in, in, that, in that area. You've, you've got a touch point of so many different players in the space. And from those, I mean, it's a shame we couldn't have enough time to go into them in more detail, but the top line stuff that you're part of, I mean, it's... Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that you're making health tech better for that region full stop. I mean, it's got everything. You could almost, you could say you've got an accelerator component, you've got the regulatory component, you've got capacity building, you've got so much that you guys are part of. Um, I think, yeah, we, we certainly see bits of it from different places here, but nowhere near is integrated. So um, I, yeah, look forward to following it. Uh, and I mean that because I think there's so much learning that the rest of the world can probably do from seeing something like this and seeing the results that you're getting. So um, do include me on any newsletter or mailing list that you've got because I want to keep in touch. But um, sure <laughs> yeah, it's poor. it depends how many you put out. It depends how long they are, if I'm being completely honest. But yes, I definitely would. <laughs> Can't promise <laughs> well, to reach the bottom every time, but. We'll invite uh, you to the conferences. That's oh, nice. perfect. No, that'd be great. That'd be really useful. I'd love that. Harjo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. How do you like best to be contacted? Is LinkedIn, that's normally the way for people. Can people add you there? People can contact me through APAC Med. Cool. So Harjit, thank you so much for coming on to the Health Tech Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Great. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.